I know. That's how we are here, nothing but slick. Good morning. Welcome to Hiawatha. We are glad you're here with us this morning. Uh, in case you're wondering why I just got handed, it's a clicker to advance the slides. So. Uh, we are in Galatians. We are getting near the end of the book, including this week. There are either three or four weeks left. I can't remember exactly how chapter six is broken up, but we'll only have one chapter left. So getting close to the end, and then obviously a few Christmas-themed messages with that just around the corner. So an exciting time. If you looked in your worship folder this morning, and if it's not your first time here and you've been here before, you may be confused because the name in the worship folder for the preacher is Spencer Peterson. I am not Spencer Peterson. My name's Jesse Splann. I'm one of the elders here at Hiawatha, and one of the privileges of being an elder is getting the opportunity to preach. Sometimes, though, that means you preach a little unexpectedly because the pastor got sick. So uh, Spencer's whole family has had the flu this week, and most of the family got it at the front end of the week, but he got it at the back end of the week. So um, he is doing a little bit better, and the rest of his family is all recovered. So uh, he's on the upswing. But that's why I'm here, in case you were wondering. All right, well, let's get into the text. Galatians 5, 16 through 26, the last 11 verses of the chapter is our passage for today. The sermon is entitled, Walk by the Spirit. Uh, Paul, the author of Galatians, is going to be contrasting the spirit and the flesh and we'll define both of those in a little bit, but he's going to be contrasting those and talk about walking by the Spirit versus following acts of the flesh. So, Galatians 5, 16 through 26. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of rage, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Let's pray. God, thank you for this passage this morning. Thank you for your word that you have spoken to us. Uh, as Hebrews says, that ultimately you spoke to us through your son and made a way back to yourself for us through Christ's death and resurrection. We're so thankful for that. I pray that you would uh, speak through me this morning, that you would touch people with these words, with whatever piece of it they need to hear, as you have for me as I've been prepping for it. And God, we pray for Spencer too. Thank you that the rest of his family has recovered from the flu and we pray that he would recover quickly, God, and that he would uh, feel your peace and your joy this morning uh, as he can't be here and wanted to. Amen. All right. 
Galatians 5. So, uh, as is typical at Hiawatha, we'll start at the beginning and just kind of work our way through the passage, commenting on different things as we go through it. So, starting with verse 16, but I say, walk by the flesh, you will not gratify, uh, walk by the spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So, defining flesh and spirit, very important. The flesh here, as Paul refers to it, is sinful nature, your former nature, uh, the old man or the old woman. It's sometimes called the old self. Flesh here does not mean something similar to like a Gnostic view or a Platonic view. Platonic meaning Plato, not Platonic versus Romantic. But it does not mean Gnostic or Platonic, the idea that the physical is bad. So Paul is not saying here physical bad, spiritual good. Flesh here means your sinful nature, your inclination without Christ's power and help to do evil, to go against God. Uh, remember that Jesus, when he came to earth, was incarnated. He took on flesh. Physical is not bad. Jesus took that on. When God created men and women back in Genesis, he created them as physical beings and everything that goes with that uh, eating and sleeping and physical pleasure and enjoyment and sex and all that type of stuff. These are all parts of God's design. So God is not, Paul is not saying here physical bad, spiritual good. He's saying sinful bad, the spirit, that of Christ, good. So that's a very important distinction, because if you don't have that distinction and you read this as physical bad, you get a very warped view of what Paul is saying in this passage. And then in 17, the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. The desires of the spirit are against the flesh. They are opposed to each other. There's a war. They're at odds with each other. And notice there's no middle ground. It's either the desires of the spirit or the desires of the flesh, one or the other. All of us follow one of those two things. There's no neutrality. You can't say, well, yeah, this whole Jesus thing, the Holy Spirit, no thank you. But the desires of the flesh, well, I'm not really following that. I'm kind of doing my own thing in between. Nope, that's not how it works. Every one of us right now, everyone in the world right now, is following the desires of the flesh or the desires of the Spirit. And then continuing in 17, they are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Now, reading the last part of that verse, you might ask, now, which of what things you want to do is he talking about? Is he talking about you're following the Spirit, and that's keeping you from doing the things you want to do, the sinful things? Or that when you're following the sinful nature, it keeps you from doing the things you want to do, the spiritual things? Good question. So remember, Paul's talking to believers here. He's talking to Christians. So he's saying to Christians, you have the Spirit. You walk by the Spirit. The Spirit is within you. And as you do that, the flesh, your old nature, is warring against that. And it's trying to prevent you from doing the things that you as a believer in the Spirit want to do. So the things you want to do in this passage are the things that, as a justified, saved, new creation being through Jesus Christ, those things you want to do, those godly things, the fruit of the Spirit type things we'll see later. But this battle... Uh, Paul speaks about in Romans 7. Because this is not just, oh, there are these two ideas and you kind of choose one or you choose the other. And, well, it's Sunday today, so I guess I'll choose the Spirit because I'm going to church. And then during the work week, well, you know how it is at my work, so I'll choose the flesh because how can you not just be filled with fits of anger, dissensions, and divisions? Um, 
And if you know where I work, that is not like a backhanded comment against my, uh, my actual place of employment. So, um, but it's not like that. There's a war going on. There's a battle and there's conflict. And as believers, our old self is still present. Paul is going to say later, it's been crucified. Our sinful nature has been crucified, but sin still exists. Sin still is present. And so we have this war that's going on, this battle. And Paul speaks about this in Romans 7. And he says, in typical uh, semi-confusing Paul language, For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within within me. A lot of doing in that passage. But basically, the summary of that passage, Paul, now remember, this is Paul writing as a believer. Paul the apostle who traveled at that time, that area of the known world, preached to thousands of people, started many churches, not on his own, through the power of the Holy Spirit. But this is Paul as a believer saying, Yeah, I don't understand my own actions, even as a believer. There's all the stuff I want to do, and I don't do it. And there's all the stuff I don't want to do, and these are the things I keep on doing. But when I do the things I don't want to do, it shows that it's not I who does it, because I have Christ now, but it's sin that dwells within me. So in this passage we see sin is not just something that's out there. It's not just something that's in the world or in other people or in people who don't have Christ. Sin is inside of us. Sin is within us. Sin is part of our old nature, part of our makeup, part of who we are. So we can't just say then, uh, well, I'll solve this battle by just running away. I'll remove myself from the sin around me, from people who have these sinful tendencies or from uh, intaking different forms of media. I'll just go away by myself somewhere and not interact with that. Uh, that won't solve the problem. Because sin is out there, but it's also within us. So another uh, illustration of this battle, the Hulk. Or Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, similar situation. But this idea, Bruce Banner, in his uh, non-Hulk persona, is kind of this uh, mild-mannered, kind, pretty gentle man. But then when he gets really angry, the Hulk comes out, and the Hulk does all the things that Bruce Banner doesn't want to do. Destroys things, kills people, rages. This is a great illustration of that battle between the spirit and the flesh. The Hulk being the flesh part, Bruce Banner being the spirit part. That you've got this thing within you that you think is under control, and then sometimes it seems like it just snaps and just manifests and rages. Just as Paul says, you know, to paraphrase Paul's words from Romans 7, with Hulk language, which is probably only slightly blasphemous. Now, I'm Bruce Banner, but I keep on becoming the Hulk, and I don't understand it, because I don't want to be the Hulk, I want to be Bruce Banner. But the Bruce Banner I want to be is not what I am, I become the Hulk. And the Hulk I don't want to be is what I become. So, if that helps you, great. If not, ignore everything I just said about the Hulk. So... Uh, This is something that Paul struggled with. This is something that we struggle with as believers. This is something that's been struggled with throughout church history. And we're going to uh, look at a quote from Jerome, not Jerome Peterson, who goes here, but St. Jerome, a much older Jerome, dead a long time now with Jesus. But this is a, uh, I've got this quote 
by him. And this is just a great illustration of how sin is not just out there, but inside us. He was a monk, and he was a monk at a time when monks would go and they would separate themselves from the world. So they would go to a monastery or they would go out in the wilderness in a desert or a forest, depending on what terrain they lived around. And they would separate themselves from people to pursue holiness and get away from the distractions of sin in the world. And Jerome, after having done this, writes about this and says, Oh, how often I imagined that I was in the midst of the pleasures of Rome when I was stationed in the desert. In that solitary wasteland which is so burned up by the heat of the sun that it provides a dreadful habitation for the monk. I, who because of the fear of hell had condemned myself to such a hell and who had nothing but scorpions and wild animals for company, often thought I was dancing with a chorus of girls. My face was pale from fasting, but my mind burned with passionate desires within my freezing body, and the fires of sex seethed. So we see here Jerome was out in the desert, and according to him, just a horrible place to be. And it says he had nothing but scorpions and wild animals for company. So no people, no women there to tempt him sexually. He was removed from people, removed from the influence of the Roman Empire and whatever city he might have lived in in Rome. But what does he say? That sin was still within him. He had removed the influence of sin from outside of him in the world, but sin was still within him. And that even in that desert, heat during the day, freezing at night, even within his freezing body at night, the fires of sex seethed. Sin was still within him. That temptation was still there. To keep you from doing the things you want to do. Tim Keller has a great quote, many great quotes, but one specifically that relates to this. The spirit-fueled development of Christ-like character is liberating because it brings us closer to being the people we were designed to be, the people our spirit-renewed hearts want us to be. Have you thought about that before? Sometimes as a believer, it's easy to think and be fooled by sin and think, oh, I wish I could just go back to that. Just like Israel when they had escaped Egypt. They're like, oh, I just want to go back to Egypt. It was so great. We had food, we had security, we had all these things. And Moses is like, Yes, but you were slaves, and you were beaten, and you were killed, and you were forced labor, and it was a horrible existence. And they're like, oh, but it was so great. No, it wasn't. It was horrible. And it's the same thing with us. We can think as believers, oh, I just wish I could go back to those sinful actions. They were so much fun, or they were so good, or it was so much easier, or it was so helpful at work to just be able to be dishonest and manipulate people, or whatever the situation is in whatever sphere of life. We just want to go back to that. But in doing that, you're actually becoming less what God designed you to be. God's design for us is to be filled with his spirit, to have believed in Christ, to have a relationship with him. And that kind of character frees us. If you were here last week, the passage says, Christ has set you free. We've been freed from sin. Sin feels like freedom sometimes, but it's actually enslavement. Christ frees us from that so that we can become what he intended us to be. Sin is deceptive, though. Deceives us, makes us think, oh, we just want to go back. 
So we've got this war between the spirit and the flesh. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. And that if there, uh, you can read it as since. Since you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. So it's not this question of like, well, if you're led by the spirit, are you or aren't you? No, if you're a believer, you are led by the spirit. Now the sinful nature still exists. Sin still exists. Within us, it still exists. But we're not led by it anymore. We're led by the Spirit, so we're not under law. We've been freed from the law. That is the battle between the Spirit and the flesh. And that is the solution to that battle, being led by the Spirit. So when we have that war between the Spirit and the flesh, that desire to do the things we don't want to do, and the inability to do the things we want to do, what's the solution to that? Not to try harder to do the things we want to do, but to be led by the Spirit, to go back to Christ, to go back to the cross, to be reminded of that. All right, the works of the flesh. I'm going to read through the list, and then we're actually going to define all of these, just so as we talk about them, we have a little clearer understanding. Some are a little more obvious uh, what they are, some maybe not so much. The works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of rage, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. So sexual immorality, that's all kinds of sexual sin, any sexual sin. So Paul throws that out kind of covering that broad uh, umbrella category. It's like, okay, sexual immorality, that's, that's a work of the flesh. Now he's going to further define some of those specifically with impurity, sensuality, and orgies, but he starts out just like, okay, just to cover that base, all sexual immorality, all kinds of sexual sin, works of the flesh. Then, moving on, impurity, selfish and lustful actions and thoughts. So, action and thought, not just doing, and selfish or lustful actions and thoughts. Sensuality, Sexual immorality related, but specifically promiscuity. So sleeping around, lots of different partners being promiscuous. Idolatry. Idolatry is worshiping anything other than God, making anything other than God your God in life. And if you're wondering, well, how do I know if something is my God if I worship it? Whatever the thing is, you might be thinking, wondering if that's your idol, if, that, if you've made that your God. Is that the thing you're most devoted to in terms of how you spend your time, how you spend other resources, whether it's money, uh, energy, whatever it might be? If that thing is not God, then you have an idol. And all of us have idols at different times. But think about that. What is the thing in life that you structure and schedule the rest of your life around? Now, obviously, there are things like with jobs, to a certain degree, we have to structure around those. You can't just go to work tomorrow and say, well, one of my pastors told me that if I schedule my whole life around work, that's an idol. So I'm just going to come in when I want and leave when I want this week. Don't worry about it. Not what I mean. But what has the foremost place in your life? If it's not God, then it's an idol. Because everyone worships. Everyone worships something. We either worship God or we worship something else. And not all idols are in of themselves bad things. Obviously, you can worship, you could worship any of the things on this list. There are people who worship sexual immorality, quite a lot of them. 
that's worshiping something evil, to worship immorality. But someone could worship their kids. Children are not evil. Children are a gift from God, but to worship them is. To make them your God is. People could worship their jobs. They could worship relationships. They could worship their marriage or their friendships or their family. They can worship nature. Nature is not evil. Nature is designed by God, but to worship it is. So idolatry can either be worshiping evil things or taking good things and making them God, which is an act of evil. But if we're worshiping anything other than God, it's idolatry. Sorcery. Sorcery is trying to use means besides Christ to reach or access the supernatural. So witchcraft, divination, any of those types of things. Sorcery, trying to access or reach or interact with the supernatural through means other than God and Jesus Christ. Enmity and strife, hatred of others and broken relationships. Jealousy and envy, not being satisfied with God himself and with what he's given you, and being discontent. So jealousy is to look at other people and say, oh, they have this. Well, why didn't God give me that? I need that. Well, you have God, and ultimately that's enough. And God's given you a lot of things. And God knows what you need. It's like when in the Old Testament there was a king named David who uh, was on the roof of his palace, and the palace as a building was taller than the other buildings, so he could look down and see the roofs of most of the other houses and saw a woman bathing on the roof of another house and thought, she's really beautiful. I'd like to have sex with her tonight. So he sent his servants to go get her, and they got her and brought her, and he had sex with her. And then uh, she was married, and this whole thing happened. She got pregnant, so then David had to kill her husband and then took her as his wife, and then their child died and all these things. But God in the process of like when he's talking to David and punishment's happening, says to him, didn't I make you king? And didn't I give you all these other things? And if it wasn't enough, wouldn't I have given you more? And saying, I know what you need and I gave you all that you need. And this jealousy you had, this envy you had of this other man's wife, you didn't need that. I gave you what you needed. You were trying to go beyond what I gave, beyond what I knew what was best for you. Fits of anger, Having a temper, uncontrollable anger, especially that hurts others, whether physically leading to violence or verbally or in other ways. So anger that's uncontrollable, a violent temper hurting others. Rivalries, you can think of some translations use the phrase selfish ambition. So thinking of, think of someone who wants to make themselves famous. So someone who goes to Hollywood or goes into politics, that they want to build themselves up, they want to make themselves famous, make themselves important, make themselves known by a lot of people, praised by a lot of people. That idea of selfish ambition. Wanting to elevate yourself above others, being willing uh, to walk over other people, to use other people, to achieve, to, be, to achieve your ambitions. Dissensions and divisions, factions, breeding disunity, gossip, slander, and lies. All those things are forms or components of dissension and division. Drunkenness, being controlled by alcohol. Orgies, another one under sexual immorality. Misusing the gift of sex that God's given. And then in typical Paul fashion, finishes out with things like these. He's like, just because I know people, and I know you're going to read that list and look for a loophole and say, aha, but he didn't say this. Just to cover all the bases, things like these. 
all the other stuff I didn't have time to write because this book isn't going to be a thousand pages long. So this list is not exhaustive. Another thing to recognize about the list is that there are some things on here that Paul lists that are just in of themselves sinful, but not everything. So he says sexual immorality, not sexuality. Sex itself is not evil, sexual immorality is. Fits of anger. Anger itself is not sinful. God becomes angry. Jesus in the Gospels, there's one place in the Gospels where he becomes angry, and that anger leads to physical action in the temple where he starts turning tables over and throwing things around, uh, and he makes a whip and uses it to drive all these animals out of the temple. And if you read that passage, you notice that Jesus' anger leads to action and to a form of violence in some ways, but it's still controlled and it's directed only at certain things. So he throws tables around, but not people. And he whips these animals to kind of get them going and drive them out of the temple, but he doesn't whip the people that brought the animals in. So his anger there is still very controlled. But anger itself is not sinful. Fits of anger, this uncontrollable anger, this anger that hurts others is. Drunkenness, alcohol is not sinful. In the Gospel of John, it says the first miracle, the first supernatural act that Jesus ever performed in his ministry was at a wedding when they ran out of wine to take a bunch of water and turn it into wine. And then they go and they drink the wine and they say, wow, this is the best wine we've ever had. So he doesn't just make wine, he makes like top-of-the-line wine. So alcohol itself, not evil, but drunkenness is. And the reason is that idea of control. As believers were to be controlled by the Spirit, when you become drunk, you are then controlled by alcohol. And if you're controlled by alcohol, you're not being controlled by the Spirit. And under the influence and the control of alcohol, you're going to do things contrary to what God wants you to do and what you would be doing under the control of the Spirit. So, two things to note. One, the list is not exhaustive. Two, not everything on the list is sinful in of itself. Some are, but some are not. It's just, uh, for some of them, it's just the way they're used in sinful ways. All right. So after the list, the end of verse 21, I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Seems like some pretty severe language, and it is. Now if you've been here for the rest of Galatians, this might be a little confusing for you because we've been talking in Galatians over and over again about how it's not about works, it's not about what we do, it's about what Christ has done. Christ frees us from the law he frees us from the need to do things to obtain favor with God. Christ has obtained favor with God on our behalf. And when we accept that, now we have favor with God without having to do anything. Just believing in Christ. That's all it is. We don't have to do anything else. And yet Paul here writes, oh, if you do these things, you won't inherit the kingdom of God. Which sounds like he's saying, so you have to not do these things to inherit the kingdom of God. Which sounds a lot like works, like something we have to do. But that's not what he's saying. Remember, going back to the beginning of the passage, what does he say? We're led by the Spirit. We're of the Spirit. Going back to the passage last week, we've been set free. So he's not saying this here as a command. He's saying, if you do these things and do such things, uh, read that and think of that as continue to do such things, having a habit of doing such things, because we all do these different things in various ways. So even this morning, I was driving here, and uh, 
when I'm preaching, I like to get here early to do a little bit of prep and just be here and relax a little bit and not get here at the last minute. I was driving here, and of course, as is always the case on the road, when you're in a hurry to get somewhere, you get stuck behind someone going slowly. And when you don't care about getting somewhere quickly, then you're never behind someone slowly. So, of course, I was in a hurry to get here, so I was behind someone slowly. And there was definitely some borderline fits of anger going on in my mind in that. Right? And that's an act of sin according to this. But that one act of sin is not indicative of the fact that I am not controlled by the Spirit. Now, if I had taken that act of sin and, like, run the person off the road and then gotten out of my car and beat him up and then run him over with my car, that would be a little more indicative. So it's talking about patterns of action. But what he's saying is not, this is what you have to do or this is what you should not do. He's saying, if this is the way you live, if the works of the flesh are primarily what your life looks like, it shows that you don't have the Spirit, that you never had the Spirit. You might come to church every Sunday morning, but sitting in church is not the same thing as having the Spirit. Knowing the lyrics to all the songs is not the same thing as having the Spirit. Having this passage memorized that I'm preaching from is not the same thing as having the Spirit. You can come here and you can look good on the outside and do all the things that you think you need to do and not have the Spirit. And really then what you're doing is just works of the flesh. Idolatry certainly in that case. Other things, some things not on the list. So that's what Paul's saying. It's a warning. Look at your life. If your life looks like verses 19 through 21, watch out. Because that may be indicative of the fact that you don't have the Spirit. That you have not believed in Jesus Christ. That your sins are not forgiven. But if that's the case, Jesus is right there waiting for you. He wants you. You don't have to clean yourself up and stop doing these things before you come to him. No, we come to him dirty and he cleans us up. So as you examine this, if you realize, wow, that is my life. I don't have the Spirit. It's good to feel some fear from that, but not to remain in that fear. Run to Jesus with that. Jesus wants you. He's calling to you. He wants to change you from someone who produces works of the flesh to someone who produces fruit. So, fruit of the Spirit. And just like with the works of the flesh, we're going to define these nine things and then talk about it a little bit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So love, elsewhere in scripture, love is called the greatest of all of these. So this is not necessarily in order or hierarchy through this list. Love isn't, it's not like love is the best and self-control is the worst, but love is greater than the rest of these. Love is the greatest. In 1 Corinthians, Paul writes that love is even greater than faith and hope. And if you're curious how that can possibly be, you can go on our website and there was a sermon on that uh, this past summer. But love is the greatest of these. And what is love? Not as Hollywood would define it, just a romantic feeling, something you feel when you see someone that you're very attracted to. That's certainly part of love. But love is much more than that. Love is serving someone based on their value, their inherent value as a person, not based on what they can give you. Love is what Jesus demonstrated for us when he who was God it says, he made himself nothing, came to earth, humbled himself, 
served us. The greatest king who's ever existed came and served people who didn't deserve it at all. Died for us and raised from the dead. That is love. Joy, delighting in the beauty and the worth of God, delighting in who God is and what he's done, delighting in our salvation. A very important thing, joy and happiness are not the same thing. They're used interchangeably a lot by people, but they're very different. The difference is happiness is situationally dependent. Joy is not. So in a bad situation, when things are going badly, you usually don't feel very happy. You feel sad or you feel frustrated or annoyed or whatever it is. Happiness is situationally dependent, but joy is not. And so it's possible to be in a situation with zero happiness because it's going horribly and still be filled with joy. And we see that in the New Testament. We see the apostles, when they're being persecuted for Uh, the gospel for their faith, when they're being beaten, when they're being tortured, that they still have joy. And they don't have happiness, but they have joy, because joy transcends situations. Peace means a couple different things. There's The biggest peace is the peace we now have with God, that we who were God's enemies have now been brought near. We're now his friends, but not only his friends, we're part of his family. There's peace between us and God. It's also peace in the sense of having rest in our hearts. When situations are stressful, when things feel out of control, having peace as we trust God's control over our life, over whatever the situation is, over all things, but also that we trust his love. Not just that he's in control, but that he cares about us and he's working for our good. And then also, peace as believers through Christ and through the Spirit We are peacemakers. We can bring peace, lowercase p, in small ways. We can bring peace. Patience, trusting God's timing, being content in the gospel. This is one that is very difficult for a lot of Americans today. Why? Because everything's instant. If I want something, often I can go on to Amazon, I can order it, I can get same-day delivery. I can have it maybe in a few hours, at most a day or two. If I want something to eat and I don't feel like taking half an hour or 45 minutes to cook from where I live, I can drive five minutes and I can get fast food at any one of a number of places. If I want to watch something, I don't have to look at a TV schedule and wait, oh, this comes on at 8 o'clock or this comes on at 9 o'clock. I can go on Netflix and I can stream it right away whenever I want. We live in a world of instant gratification and the idea of patience is very foreign in a lot of ways and extremely frustrating. But God's timing is not our timing. Think about that. The fact that there comes a point in life where we believe, where we accept Christ, but then there's a process that lasts the rest of our life. Wouldn't it be so much easier for God when that moment happens to just zip us up to his presence right away, just whisk us away? It would be easier from our perspective. But that's not the the way God's chosen to do it. And why we know some of that, some of that God hasn't revealed to us. It's the way he chose it, and he has his reasons that he hasn't shared. But God's timing is not our timing. And there are many ways in which God works much slower than we want him to. I have a few friends I can think of who are not believers that I've been praying for that I wish would become believers. And it's so frustrating to me. It's like, God, why haven't you done this yet sometimes? It's like, why didn't you do it during this conversation? Or why didn't you do it this day or that day? And God's response is, that's not my timing. I've got a plan. You need to be patient. 
You need to trust me. Trusting God's timing. And that comes through contentment in the gospel. Being content in the gospel is the greatest piece of being able to be patient, of having patience. Kindness. Showing generosity, sympathy, and hospitality to other people. Goodness. Think of integrity, being the same person in every situation. Are you a different person sitting here Sunday morning than you are at work during the week? Are you a different person at work than you are when you're with your family at home? And I don't mean necessarily, obviously, at work, you might have conversations and talk about topics that are different than you're going to talk about with your family or different than you're going to talk about here. If you're measuring the resistance on different circuit boards and circuit breakers, when you come here to work, to church, not everyone's going to care about that. You're going to start talking about, they'll be like, I don't know what you're talking about. That's not what I mean. I mean character. Are you the same person here that you are in the other pieces of your life? Goodness is also working for the benefit of others over self. Working for others' benefit, integrity, being the same person in every situation. Faithfulness. Think of loyalty, courage, being trustworthy, being a person who do what, does what you say. Obviously, there are exceptions. You might say, you know, I might say to one of my roommates, I'll be up at 7 a.m. and I'll give you a ride to the airport. And then I get up and all four of my tires have been slashed. It's like, well... I'm not going to be able to give you a ride to the airport in my car now. But faithfulness, being a person of your word, being trustworthy, being loyal, being courageous. And that's in all relationships, not just faithfulness in a marriage, which is those things, but in friendships, in other relationships. Being faithful at work, someone who's trustworthy, someone who does what they say, someone who, when they say, hey, can you get this done and have it to me by the end of the week? You say, yeah. And then, to the best of your ability, you do it. Gentleness. Humility. Think the opposite of selfish ambition. And gentleness can sometimes be misconstrued as weakness, but gentleness is not weakness. Christ was gentle. Christ was so gentle with the people he interacted with. The people who came to him in arrogance and in sin, demanding things of him, questioning his authority, questioning who he was, questioning his identity, mocking him. And in all those things, when Jesus would have been justified in just instantly destroying those people on the spot, he didn't do that. He was gentle with them. He was patient with them. He was kind to them. He did not have selfish ambition. His actions were the opposite of that. And then finally, self-control being in control of our actions and our thoughts and our motives. So you might think to yourself, well, that's a great list, but I'm really bad at all of those. Or I have a real problem with this one. I just can't do that well. Well, join the club. We all have a lot of trouble with all of those. So what's the solution to that? No surprise, Jesus is the solution. Notice the contrast between acts of the sinful nature, acts of the flesh, and fruit of the Spirit. An act is something you do. Something you do on your own, something you bring about. Fruit, think of a tree. An apple tree doesn't think anything because it's not sentient. But an apple tree doesn't sit there and think to itself, 
I have to make apples, I have to make apples, I have to make apples, I have to make apples. And they have to be really good and they have to be this color. No, an apple tree is just there and it just grows. And naturally, because it's an apple tree, it produces the fruit of apples. In the same way as believers, when we struggle with fruits of the Spirit, the answer is not to think to ourselves, oh, I have to produce love, I have to produce joy, I have to produce joy, I have to produce joy. No. That doesn't work. The solution, Jesus in John 15, he uses the metaphor of a vine and branches and says that he's the vine and we all are branches that are offshoots of that vine. And he says in verses 4 through 6 of that chapter, Remain in me and I in you. Just as a branch is unable to produce fruit by itself unless it remains on the vine, neither can you unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit because you can do nothing without me. So what is the solution when we're not producing fruit? Or when the fruit we're producing is not good quality? The solution is to go back to the vine. Not as a branch in ourselves to try and produce better fruit, because that doesn't work. The solution is to go back to the vine. Jesus is the vine. Go back to him. Believe the gospel again. Look to Jesus. He is the one, ultimately, through the Spirit that produces fruit in us. And it's inevitable. As a believer, it is inevitable that you will produce fruit. Just as for an apple tree, it is inevitable that that apple tree will produce apples. It's what apple trees do. If the tree suddenly produced oranges, you would say, oh, it wasn't an apple tree, it was an orange tree all along. You wouldn't say, well, that's the oddest apple tree I've ever seen. How did it produce oranges? In the same way, those who are believers are going to produce the fruit of the Spirit. And notice, too, it's singular, fruit, not fruits. Believers produce all of those, all of those. It's not like, oh, well, God produces a lot of fruit in me, but no self-control. It's like, no, that's not how it works. Or God produces a lot of peace in me, but no joy. That's not how it works. God produces all of those fruit in believers. Also, a side note, the fruit of the Spirit are not spiritual gifts. Now, obviously, they come from the Spirit, and it's a gift in that we don't do it ourselves. But speaking, as the New Testament does, of spiritual gifts, specific giftings individuals have for the good of the body. For instance, right now, I'm exercising the spiritual gift of preaching and teaching. Not everyone in this room has that gift. God writes through the Apostle Paul in another part of the New Testament, if everyone had the same gift... Where would everything else be? If everyone in this room only had the gift of preaching and teaching, we could have some great preaching teaching moments, but then someone that comes in that's never been here before, maybe never been to church before, they'd hear some great truth, they'd hear some great teaching, they'd have the gospel preached to them, but without someone with the gift of hospitality, there'd be no one to invite them into a relationship. Say, hey, you're new here, you want to have lunch together? What do you think about that? Let's talk about that some. Without the gift of gentleness, that preaching and teaching could just be very harsh. There could be no compassion with it. There might not be compassion with it. So, uh, different people have different gifts. But all believers have all of the fruit. So you can't just say, well, I don't have the fruit of love because that's not the one God gave me. It's like, no, the fruit of the Spirit isn't divvied up like the gifts. All believers have all nine of the fruit of the Spirit. But that only comes through Christ. That only comes through remaining in that vine. We can't do it on our own.
And then the end of verse 23, against such things there is no law. Against these fruit of the Spirit there is no law. Law cannot make these things happen, and there is no law opposed to them that can shut them down or stop them. We can't produce these. Law can't produce these. Only being linked to Jesus Christ produces fruit. In another part of John 15, Jesus says that God the Father is the vine dresser. He says, yeah, when there are parts that are weak or parts that are uh, sick or parts that are rotting, God's the one who trims those pieces. So in the same way, when we as believers are producing fruit, but there's some rotting fruit on there or there's fruit, uh, there are other issues with that. The solution is not to try and prune ourselves. It's to go back to Christ and back to God and let him prune that. Just like you never see an apple tree out there with a pair of pruning shears cutting off the dead pieces like, oh, not how it happens. Someone else has to go out and do that for the tree. In the same way, God does that for us. Remaining in Christ and in the vine is the only way as branches we can produce fruit to begin with. And then when there are issues with that, God is the one who prunes that. We do not prune ourselves. So we're going to look at, real quickly, these nine fruit. There are nine passages up there. I don't have them up on the screen. Uh, but I'm going to read all of these different verses. Each of these shows Christ demonstrating these different fruit of the Spirit. So love. From John 15, greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. What did Jesus do? He came, he laid down his life, not just for his friends, but for his enemies. He loved us to death and back. Joy, from Hebrews 12, we look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And you see in there the contrast between joy and happiness. What's it say? It said he endured the cross. Not, he joyfully enjoyed the cross. It was the best day of his life. No, he endured it. It was horrible. There was no happiness in those moments. There was pain and there was fear and there was sorrow. But there was joy. Joy not dependent on situation. Peace from Romans 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace, through, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Jesus Christ, we have peace with God. Patience from those various passages. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. The reason that God doesn't move as quickly as we want him to sometimes is because of patience, not laziness, not lack of planning, not just slowness, but patience. He doesn't want any to perish, and so he gives people opportunity after opportunity, after opportunity. He's patient with them to lead them to repentance. Kindness and goodness. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Jesus, in goodness and loving kindness, appeared, and saved us, not because we deserved it or because of anything we had done, but because of his goodness, because of his kindness, showing itself in mercy. Faithfulness, 
Therefore, Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to turn away God's wrath for the sins of the people. Jesus was a faithful high priest. He came, he said he was going to die for us, and they didn't get to the cross and say, ooh, you know, this is a little different than I thought. I'm just going to have to back out. I'm not going to go through with it. But don't worry, it's no big deal. No big deal. No, he was faithful to his word. He was faithful to the mission and the reason that he came to earth, that he took on humanity. Gentleness. Jesus' words from the Gospel of Matthew, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. He says, I'm gentle. Come to me. Whatever burdens you have, whatever yokes you have weighing you down, bring them to me. I'm gentle. You'll find rest for your soul. And then self-control. This is when Jesus was hanging on the cross and people are mocking him, and the criminals, there were two criminals who were also crucified, one on each side of him, and they're mocking him, and he turns to one of them and says, do you not think, do you think that I cannot appeal to my father, and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? Because they're saying, if you're really God, come down off the cross. If you're really God, save yourself. And he turns to them and says, do you understand the self-control I'm exercising right now? I could call on God one word and he'd put at my disposal hundreds of thousands of angels to deal with the probably about half dozen Roman guards that were there guarding the crosses. He's like, you think I can't get out of this if I want? You think I can't call on all the supernatural resources of God? You think I can't wipe the Roman army out right now if I wanted to? But that's not what I came to do. That would not fulfill the purpose of that God has ordained in this. Self-control. All right. So, gospel application. We've seen the acts of the flesh. We've looked at the fruit of the Spirit. Seen the contrast between them. Seen that fruit is not something we produce in ourselves. It's something produced by being in Christ. Something that's pruned and kept up by God the Father, not by ourselves. So with all that, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. So number one, remember the gospel. Remember your identity. You belong to Christ Jesus. If you have believed in his life, in his death, his resurrection from the grave, you belong to Christ Jesus. And in that, you have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. But remember, that doesn't mean that sin isn't still present, that we don't struggle. It means it doesn't control anymore. It means we're not led by it. We're led by the Spirit. Remember that identity. Paul writes earlier in Galatians, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. He says, I died, and I'm alive, but it's no longer just me living, it's Christ living in me. And the life I now live, all the good that's done, is through faith in the Son of God. It's not my own work, it's not my own power. It's through being connected to that vine, being a branch of that vine. Two, live spirit-led and spirit-filled lives. 
As a believer, we have the Spirit. It's going to happen. But as Paul writes here, if we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Three, naturally the Spirit will produce fruit in us. Remember your identity. You are connected to the vine. You are a branch on the vine if you have believed, if you have accepted Christ. The flesh has been crucified with its passions and with its desires. And fruit is inevitably going to be produced in us. It's inevitable because God's the one doing it. And if you're sitting here this morning and you have not believed and you don't know Christ, a warning for you, but also an invitation. The warning, if you continue to live in the way you have, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. You will not share in the final benefits of God. You will not be with God. You will not be with Christ. You will suffer. But that invitation is open to you. The vine of Jesus Christ can accept an infinite number of ingrafted branches. God can graft you in. He wants to graft you in through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you are the vine, that you do not require us to do this on our own, that you have saved us, that you sustain us, that you prune us when necessary. We thank you, God, that you produce fruit in us through your Spirit. I pray, God, that uh, you would help us to remember our identity in you, that we have been grafted to the vine, that we are branches. I pray that you would help us not to try and produce fruit on our own, which is impossible, but to continually look to you and come to you and trust you to inevitably produce fruit in us, to inevitably prune us when necessary. And God, I pray for everyone here who does not know you, who does not have a relationship with you, who is still at war with you, that you would save them, that you would ingraft them into the vine of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Let's